Well, at this time, I want to invite you to open in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5 as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount at, at, a, at a lower level than, than last week. The germane thing that you need to bear in mind from last week is that the principal point of this sermon is to tell us something about Jesus. That he is authoritative. He is the Messiah. You, you cannot rightly come to the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot rightly interact with it as just a set of fables or a set of morals or, or, or of general platitudes. If you come to the Sermon on the Mount but fail to come to the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, you have missed the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? Coming to Jesus is the point of the Sermon on the Mount. So, with that in mind, then, we're going to look at the introduction to the sermon. And if you look down at your Bible, you'll probably see a header, a section header, <clears throat> before verse 13 that says, Salt and Light. Throughout your Bible, and the Sermon on the Mount is no distinction, no exception, your, your translation committee folks have seen fit to aid your understanding of God's word by putting section headers here and there. Well, when it comes to this kind of thing, what it can do is inadvertently make you think that he started a new topic when he has not. Uh, really, you should take away the section header and understand that verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 are the concluding statements about the very same people he's referring to as being blessed in the Beatitudes. Okay? So this whole section is referring to the same group of people, those who are blessed of God. And so we will read Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. Sorry, beginning at verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this sermon. We thank you for having given it to us. We pray that we would approach it rightly, that we would approach it with humility, and that we would indeed hear the voice of our Savior, the great shepherd of the flock. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, as I was just saying a few moments ago, uh, here in these verses we see the, ser- the, the sermon's introduction. The Sermon on the Mount begins where most sermons end, namely with a blessing. And our, in our worship services, Christian worship services, typically conclude with blessing, the blessing of the people. Here Jesus begins his sermon with a blessing, and then as you see at the end of chapter 7, he ends his sermon with a mic drop. Uh, It is a tour de force demonstration of his absolute authority, and what is an awesome thing to note about this introduction of this sermon is that he begins his people by blessing them before he ever, ever, ever declares to them an imperative. God's goodness is pronounced to his people before God ever gives a word of command, of obligation to his people. This is the pattern for how grace works. We see this even perhaps more clearly, more explicitly, in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. But is that how the Decalogue begins? No. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay, it begins by reminding the people of the grace that has been lavished upon them. So then the law comes as a response to grace having been received. In the same way, Jesus begins his sermon by pronouncing blessing upon his people. Understand that this is vitally crucial to help us remember that when we think about how our Christian life works, it's grace first, then duty. Grace comes first, and duty follows as having received from the good hand of of our God. The Beatitudes here are sometimes misconstrued as a list of virtues to be cultivated. As if this is the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, or, or the virtue lists from Colossians 3, 12 to 15, or 2 Peter 1, 5 to 8. No, th- th- there's a little bit of overlap, but these aren't prescribed, do this, develop this, that's all absent. Jesus begins by announcing a state of blessedness 
on people of a certain type. Now, when, when you consider the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and their place within it, Jesus provides here eight Beatitudes. If you look at verse 11, and you'll see that he basically elaborates on the concept of persecution. So some might think that's nine, but, but it's really eight. He's elaborating on that. And of these eight, seven of them, Matthew is going to attribute to Jesus later in his Gospels in the same verbiage. So of these eight Beatitudes, seven of them are attributed to Jesus. There's only one that's not attributed to Jesus, and that's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit because of what poor in spirit means. To be poor in spirit, as we will see, refers to one's self-awareness of their spiritual need. Now, Jesus, in every way, identifies with sinners, in every way. But it's important to remember that there's a creator-creature distinction. Okay, He comes to bridge the gap between God and man. As such, he is not lacking. He doesn't have any spiritual need that needs to be shored up. And so that's why that one trait, that one state of blessedness is not ascribed to Jesus because he is the bridge of the gap. He's the one who bridges and makes atonement for those who in fact are poor in spirit. What you sometimes hear is that this is an atomistic list of traits, okay? There are some people who have poorness of spirit. There are some people who mourn. There are some people who are merciful. Uh, there are some people who are none of it. And that is to miss the boat. What Jesus is doing here is not telling his disciples you can be in right relationship with God and, and, and have a piece of the kingdom of heaven and none of these apply to you, but they should. And therefore, you should seek to cultivate the... No, that's, that's wrong. Do not think that you can be a Christian and lack these. What this is, is a description of people who are in the kingdom. These Traits, if you want to call them, are all various facets of one character. And they flow together logically. And Jesus is pointing out the state of blessedness that exists for someone who is in his kingdom. So, for example, look at the blessing he ascribes at the first beatitude. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then look at the end. Look at, look at the, the eighth beatitude with its blessing. The persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the same blessing brackets the beginning and the end. What then follows throughout the other blessings are developments on what it means to have the kingdom of heaven. So the overarching thing here is people who are in my kingdom are, exist in a state of blessedness and this is the blessing pronounced upon the various facets of that person. 
the Beatitudes show us a state of blessedness that goes beyond anything that human cultures or civilizations value. We almost always tend to think in terms of blessing from the vantage point of material, relational prosperity. And Jesus turns that on its head because he's talking to the people who are the utter have-nots of his day. When he says, blessed are, he's reminding them and announcing to them that they exist in right relationship with God and as such are objects of his affection, attention, and interest. They are friends of God. And as such, they are heirs to the kingdom of heaven and all of its blessings and benefits. But that does not mean that right now they have it easy. Each of these beatitudes has its corresponding precedent in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's things that woefully were absent. Sometimes it's things that were positively prescribed. But in each case, it has an Old Testament precedent and they flow together. These are not simply a string of virtues. So, how does it work together? Well, you'll see that the first of the eight, of the eight Beatitudes, the first three are commonly referred to as the Beatitudes of Attitude. The Beatitudes, sometimes, as Warren Wearsby would like to say. The Beatitudes. And then in sort of a chiastic fashion, chiastic fashion, the fourth Beatitude is sort of the hinge. And then Beatitudes 5, 6, and 7 are the corresponding Beatitudes of action that each of them balances back to the first three. So Beatitude 5 is the corresponding action for Beatitude 1. Beatitude 6 is the corresponding, beati action, corresponding action for the attitude from Beatitude 2. Beatitude 7 is Beatitudes 3's action. So then what is Beatitude 8? Beatitude 8 is the blessing of response because this is the response that we can expect to encounter in the world. Notice that Beatitudes 1 and 8 have a present tense blessing. Yours is the kingdom. Beatitudes 2 through 7 are future-oriented. They shall be this. They shall that. Future. So we exist in a present tense state of blessedness with a future fulfillment. To be in the kingdom now brings about a relative fulfillment of these other six, but its grand final fulfillment comes future. And it culminates with a statement about the nature of God's people in the world. So, what kind of person is in the kingdom 
of Christ. Well, Jesus begins by blessing the poor in spirit. When he thinks about the poor in spirit, he's thinking about the people who are there who are acutely aware of their spiritual lack. These are the ones that the prophets have ser- had searched for and longed for and called them to be for centuries. Instead of being puffed up thinking that they were so righteous, that they were so full of spe- uh, spe- special self-confidence that they had attained some degree of holiness. No, the, to be lowly and poor in spirit was to be someone who was self-aware of their lack. I am a sinner. And perhaps nowhere do you see this more clearly than in the parable Jesus tells in Luke 18. When he describes two people who have gone up to worship. And you see, for example, the corresponding attitude and action from from Beatitude 1, poor in spirit, with with Beatitude 5, merciful, uh, in, in Luke 18, he tells this parable to some who were righteous in themselves and treated others with contempt. So there's an action that flows from an attitude, okay? And he tells the story of a Pharisee who goes up. And you all know the prayer, or you may recall the gist of it. Here's what he said. Uh, The Pharisee, he stands by himself and he prays thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Wow. Thank you for making me not like these other people. There's the little tip of the hat to, to God's grace there, but it's all about him and how wonderful he is. So self-confident and aware and assured But then the second person, the tax collector, stands far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's Jesus' verdict on this. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Okay? So to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge your neediness. You cannot be a Christian if you think that you are this awesome thing that God should be thrilled that you're singing his praise. If you are full of yourself and your accomplishments and attainments or whatever and think that God is just, I don't know, Lucky to have you, you are wrong. Consider the, 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 the shocking words of Jesus from Revelation 3, 3.17. You say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. How many spiritual people, religious people, are plagued by that thought 
that I'm basically okay. My life is all together. I'm not, I'm not addicted to any bad things. I'm managing my stuff well. I tithe. I go to church. I do my religious duties. I do my civic duties. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but, but I'm pretty nice. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There is oftentimes a vast gulf from the way we perceive ourselves and the way God does. And he's addressing Jesus here in his, when he initially delivered this sermon, he's addressing a bunch of religious people. Everybody was at least nominally of, of, of the people of God. Okay, he's addressing a bunch of religious people, and religious people struggle with the sin of presumption, assuming that they are basically okay. And Jesus wants to remind us that the poor in spirit are the ones who are in his kingdom. You must understand your need, your neediness, your lack. You are a contingent being you didn't have to be. We are small, finite, and frail. We are imperfect. We are in utter dependence. But then if you have this self-awareness, that's gonna naturally flow into the second beatitude. And this is what the prophets decried that was lacking for centuries. Those who mourn. This is not a carte blanche blessing on every person in the world who experiences a big sad. Uh, one of the greatest abuses of the beatitude is to attribute this carte blanche across the world to every human who experiences. No, this is, a, this is a special, contextually, from the Old Testament. And what we see in the book of James, for example, where we are told to, to consider our sins, to beat our breasts, and to wail. This mourning is the kind of mourning that comes from being aware of your lack. It's the mourning that comes from despising and hating your own sin and the effects of sin in the world. This isn't just, I'm sad about something, I didn't get my way, or something I liked is gone. This is the sadness that comes from being under deep conviction of the state of your heart. I'm a sinner, and I hate it. The prophets tried for centuries to get the people of Israel to bemoan and bewail their sin, and they didn't. But you cannot be aware and cognizant of your lack and of the standard of God's righteousness and not bemoan and wail your sin. We must mourn. But those who do will be comforted. But as we learn in Luke 6, those who don't, eh, they've received their consolation now. Whatever, whatever attainments they get in life, that's the best they're ever going to get. But then if you are in awareness of your need and if you're, if you're mourning your sinfulness, 
and the effects of sin in the world, this, this leads to number three. This leads to being meek. You, you can't be aware of my def- your deficiencies and be sad for it and not be humble. It leads you to a posture of humility. When it says meek, this does not mean timid. Okay, Jesus is meek. Jesus himself t- invites us to come to him and to take on his burden, his, 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 uh, take us his yoke upon us because he is meek and gentle. No, to be meek means that you are, you can be assertive and be meek, but, but to be meek means you're not self-advancing. You're not projecting yourself, trying to make your way happen on earth. That you aren't competing with God. That it's his will you want done, not yours. So if you're aware of your needs and your, and your own deficiencies and, and, and you're genuinely mourning that, it leads to a posture of, of humility because you know that you have no leg to stand on before God. And that leads to the central blessing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If you, if you know your shortcomings, if you know you're deficient, if you're mourning your, your inabilities to, 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 stay, to be and stay sin-free, and if that has led you to a posture of humility, then, then it has led you to a place where you understand that if you're going to have righteousness, it's going to have to come from outside you. You can't get it yourself, so you're hungering and you're thirsting. You're longing for something that's outside of you that you need to get in you. That's what it means to hunger and thirst. You have a lack that you need filled, and it's only going to get filled from outside of you. And it's here that we see the gospel, the gospel as we understand the message implied in this passage. That the righteousness that we need comes from outside us, alien righteousness, and it is given to us, and it satisfies doesn't Jesus allude to this when he speaks about streams of living water and if, if, you, if you drink from the water that I have, you'll never thirst again? Oh, he satisfies your deepest longings and concerns and, and that addresses the lack. And then having, having experienced the knowledge of the fact that righteousness is mine as a gift from outside, Then the Beatitudes continue and this person continues and this posture of knowing my shortcomings and and being being mourning my my sin and being humble, it finds a corresponding action. Beatitude number five looks back at number one. If you're poor in spirit, then that leads you to show mercy because you understand that you're no better. And when you're mourning your sin, then that leads you to being pure in heart, which is, which is the beatitude of practical righteousness where you're seeking to honor God's law. You're seeking to put away sin. You're seeking, you're mortifying the flesh in the words of our theological tradition. That's the action that comes from mourning sin. If I hate my sin and I'm mourning it, 
then I'm not going to be doing the things to feed it. Or else I'm not really mourning it, am I? If I'm genuinely upset about my sin, I'm going to mortify my flesh. And that's what the pure in heart is. And the peacemakers. If you are meek and non-self-advancing, you are the perfect person to be a peacemaker. This world is filled with people advancing their own cause, their own agenda. And so that just breeds conflict and strife. But someone who's lowly in spirit, mourning sin, humble before God, is the perfect person to seek peace between brothers. Because they're advancing the purposes of the Lord and not theirs. So these Beatitudes paint a picture of what it looks like to be a Christian. They are the ones who are blessed of the Lord. And understand that you may be thinking, well, I'm not as humble as I should be. And I'm not as, I'm, don't get me wrong. You're not perfect. And you're a work in progress. You don't have, if, if these characteristics had to be maintained to the same degree that Jesus had them in order for you to be in the kingdom, there would be no one in the kingdom but Jesus. But nonetheless, while my, my, my awareness of my sin may not be as great as it should be, nonetheless, I'm aware of my sin. While my hatred of my sin may not be as, as, as much as it should be, I hate my sin, okay? And I'm seeking to mortify my flesh. And I, and I know, understand that what he's talking about here is the, the progressive work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his people. And he wants you to know that you're experiencing life in a state that is blessed by God because you are one of his. And having been transferred into his kingdom, and you're modeling traits and attitudes and actions that the world finds silly at best, offensive at worst, you can expect the possibility that you might be persecuted. And this persecution takes the shape. I appreciate that Jesus doesn't just hold off. We, there's, there's, there's this portion of the churchy world that wants to only use the word persecution if it involves, I don't know, going to jail or getting beat or fired. Okay? No, Jesus is, the words he used for persecution includes things that, that, are, that are still painful uh, and, and hurtful. Blessed are when others revile you. Do you know what it means to be reviled? To be treated with contempt, derision, dismissal. Has that ever happened to you? For your faith? Because of who you are and whose you are? And persecute you for righteousness sake? And utter all kinds of evil against you? Have you been spoken evilly against? Or, yeah. Yeah. Have you been called hateful? Have you been called bigot? 
Have you been, I mean, I read a thing that the FBI is tracking, uh, is monitoring Roman Catholics who don't, who, who the, the Roman Catholics who don't uh, subscribe to Vatican II. So they're like, the, you know, the Latin right crowd as, 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 as extremists. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, you can expect reviling, hate speech thrown at you, and then they're going to gaslight you and tell you that you're the hater. You can expect all of that. You can expect sometimes to be attacked, fired. And the world will tell you that you had it coming because you're bad. And the words of Jesus are, blessed are you when this happens. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I, I, we're reading through Jeremiah right now, and, and it's astounding. He does his thing, and they beat him for it. They want to kill him for it. Reading his prophecy is like this, 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 this live stream of what's going on in his head because he'll, 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 he'll give a prophecy, and then he'll, Lord, what's going on here? And, and they recognize he's a prophet. That's the thing that blows my mind. They recognize he's a prophet, but nonetheless, whenever he prophesies, they beat him up for it. That's... The tw- and, and understand from the vantage point of the people doing that, it made perfect sense. Even though we look at it and know it's obviously these people are crazy. But that's what they did to the prophets. And that's what we can expect. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world, we are a city on a hill. He gives, gives three metaphors to describe his people in the world. You are blessed because you are his and you are in the world. And I don't want to get hung up on, is the point of the salt to preserve or to flavor? Both. It was just as ambiguous then as it is now. But, but, but here's the thing that I want you to see. Whether you're talking about salt as a preservative or salt as, or salt as a flavor enhancer, it has to get in contact with the stuff to do that, right? I make bacon regularly, and you gotta, get, you gotta rub the salt on the pork belly or else it ain't gonna get cured, okay? You gotta stir the salt into the soup in order for it to, be, to do its thing, So when he says salt of the earth, that's a metaphor of engagement up close and in in, in it, touching it. When he says you are the light of the world and a city on a hill, those are metaphors of distinction because the city on the hill is is there. You're outside, it's something over there that you can see the, the light of the world is something that's, that's all around but outside of us. And so he's painting a picture here uh, using metaphors to describe his people of, of being thoroughly engaged in the world. And you're going to have an influence in the world 
as you live your life and, 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 and do your thing, but, but be careful. You are distinct from it. And, and you can't call people to a, to a beacon point if you've become so concerned about being in the midst that you've lost all your distinction. And so, this sermon begins with a blessing. The world may despise you. The world may have no use for you. You may feel like you have no purpose, no value, no place. But nonetheless, if you are in the kingdom, you are one of Jesus' dearly beloved younger brothers and sisters, and you have a valued place in the world. Indeed, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. And you are one of his emissaries. And that is why whatever your vocation is, you live unto the Lord and you let your light shine that they may see your good works. And whatever vocation it is, whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, or a diaper changer in the house, let them see your good works that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because you are blessed, and ours is a kingdom that wants to advance the cause of blessedness. And we want to make converts of those who are not blessed, that they may join us in that throng. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Grant, O Lord that we would model the character of Christ. And we thank you for announcing to us that we are your friends and that you care deeply for us. Lord, grant that we would be faithful to serve as salt and light, for so we are. And grant that we would indeed welcome those who are spiritually hungry and thirsty. And grant that we would indeed, in all things, point to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's in his name we pray. Amen.